You can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is ready on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers who enjoy discussing genre movies and related media. And for this bonus episode, we're really pleased to be joined by Dr. Stacey Abbott of Roehampton University. Welcome to the uh, the show, Stacey. Uh, thank you for the invitation. No, no problem. Um, so before we get into anything just for the benefit of our listeners Stacey if you could tell us a little bit about yourself what you do what your interests are and what you're here to talk about today that would be great no problem um, I'm a university lecturer so I teach film and television studies so I have the pleasure of uh, watching films and TV for a living and getting to share my passions with students which is great um, my, I suppose my research interests are particularly around, like you, around genre film and TV. So I'm interested in most genres, but particularly horror and science fiction are the areas that I write most about and really like talking about. And I teach a number of classes on these subjects. And the topic that I suppose that we're here to talk about today and really is close to my heart in a strange way, is um, vampire films and TV. I've been really a passionate fan of vampire films since I was a kid and wrote my PhD thesis on vampire films. So it's become sort of an area of expertise and an area that I continue to like to sort of watch and write about because it's kind of always changing and developing. And every time I think I'm done, something new comes out and I go, oh, there's more to say and there's more to watch. Yeah. So, uh, Stacy, what was what was it that got you into uh, into vampires? Well, it's possibly cliche to say that it was Anne Rice's interview with the vampire was probably the one the th- reading that that really got me into it in a more conscious way. I had watched lots of horror films as a kid, and like most horror films, um, from the old Dracula films from Universal to I grew up in the '80s, so I grew up in the slasher era. So I always liked horror films, but um, Anne Rice's interview of the vampire suddenly caught my attention and I really liked the first person storytelling and, and telling a story from a vampire's point of view. And that really excited me that I thought well, this is such a different way of telling a story and a different perspective on the world, of a, uh, the perspective of an immortal who sees the world change and, and sees humanity's strengths and weaknesses. And that really excited me, and that kind of led me on the road to more vampire books and, and, and obviously film. So what did you think of the film? 
of Interview with the Vampire. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Um, I was, like many people, dubious when they first announced it and was not confident that Tom Cruise would be the right Lestat. Not because <laughs> I'm against Tom Cruise, but just I, at that time, I couldn't imagine him doing it. Seems so inconsistent with his persona. But I, I think it's, I really like it. I think he's very good. It's, it's obviously a, you know, a mainstream production. It can't capture the depth of those novels. You know, it only, you can only take the story so far, but I think it is beautifully shot. Neil Jordan has such a wonderful eye for period settings and the kind of the sensuousness of that story. Um, and I thought that, that Tom Cruise captured the humor of Lestat really well as well as the darkness of it. So I was a big fan of it. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a film I've uh, went back to recently, and I have to say it is it, it has dated a bit. It's, it does have the touch of a, the 90s about it. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> I never hold that completely against films because sometimes they are just products of their time. And, you know, it absolutely has that look. And I would say that... Um, if you want to see a kind of updated version, uh, Neil Jordan's film Byzantium, yes. which is a more recent vampire film with two female vampires, I think is a really interesting kind of reworking of a very similar story. And it feels far more contemporary and and, and less, well, it's not dated yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. no, I agree. I, I, I saw that one as well. And um, it was interesting. Just, just, just while we're on the subject, as we sort of gone there of the whole interview with the vampire thing, um, did you see and what were your thoughts on Queen of the Damned? It's going to sound like I'm a fan of everything, but I'm, I think I'm one of the very few people who quite enjoyed it. Um, I think it's not, it's, it's really flawed. It's very flawed. And, but I have a kind of guilty pleasure in it. And it really is a guilty pleasure because I don't think it's a very well-made film, but it has a really wonderful kind of C movie quality to it, which I enjoy. And I like the musical score. So I think it has lots of weaknesses, but it also has a kind of cheesy, it offers cheesy pleasures for me. <laughs> but nothing wrong with a bit, nothing wrong with a bit of cheesy pleasures. We're, no, we're, we're camp, all into that. <laughs> there's a campness to it that I enjoy, but I'm really aware that I think my husband and I, who also enjoys it, I think we are really, really part of a minority of people who enjoy it. It, well, yeah. it, it 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 had a hard act to follow, and it, it it's that sort of thing. I think it's not if you watch it as a sort of movie in its own right, it's not too bad. But if you try and yeah. pretend it's part of the the world that uh, that Neil Jordan set up, then then obviously it does fall on its face. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's, it's fair to say it's not remotely in the same league, um, and I don't think it's even trying to be in the same league. It's just off doing its rather low budget. Um, bz movies and movie quality <laughs> making to it uh, but, I, but like i said it has it has camp pleasures i think yeah fair enough fair enough well i mean y you and i met because um recently uh the bfi did a um a stephen king season to sort of commemorate his uh his his 70th birthday um uh recently and uh there was a a screening of the the full length TV version, but on the big screen of uh, Salem's Lots, uh, which I have to admit is 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 one of my all time favourites. And um, you, you you talked quite passionately about that 
before the film started. So, uh, so that, that, that's clearly in your list as well, yeah? <laughs> it is, for sure. Um, it's one of my favorite Stephen King books, which I think it's such a, a brilliant and important book, for both for Stephen King, but for horror literature. I just think it's a um, rich, rich story to story. But the, but the TV adaptation, um, as I said when, I, we, when we met, I think it is um, very well told. It, is, um, it had such an impact on me as a child because I was quite young when I saw it on television. Uh, and I think it speaks to that kind of child in you watching vampires clawing at your window. And it, it, it always stayed with me. Uh, and that image of the boy scratching at the window is one that I still find quite chilling. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, Absolutely. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yes, same, yeah, I, same I, here. Yeah, that was many, uh, many a thing that freaked me out as a child as well <laughs> when I first saw it, and uh, it, it was, it was amazing to uh, to actually see it on the, on the on the big screen. I mean, that was actually quite a quite a decent print um, they had of it, and uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it works. It's still totally holds up i think you know <laughs> it, it does and and speaking of things being dated for all of its sort of late 70s television qualities and some of the casting choices are very much coming out of late 70s television it didn't feel dated it's the story i think really holds up yes the effects are you know or have been have developed so much now that you know you have to kind of forgive sort of simpler effects but they're actually really still effective and I just thought it really held up. And I thought, no, actually, this is still scary. This is still unsettling. And the climax in the Marsden house, where you finally everything just really comes together, I think still is really, really um, disturbing and unsettling. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Toby Hooper is a great director. I mean, it's, uh, that's a sad, a sad recent loss there. But, um, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of idea of, filming things backwards uh or you know reversing it in the edit and all that sort of thing was um was was really sort of uh, uh you know ahead of its time and 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 worked beautifully and and i think you know even watching it on the big screen yes if you look closely you can see the boom arm that the actors are on and and stuff like that but um but you know when you think it was essentially designed for for for, for television uh you know most people back then wouldn't have bigger than a sort of 22 inch set anyway, then, then, um, then, you know, you can forgive those things. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we saw it in, in a great experience seeing it on the big screen, but it wasn't meant to be seen that way. So you are going to see things that are going to stand out. What, what, they're going to stand out in a way they wouldn't on television. Um, so I think it was really great. It was great to see it. And I'm so glad that um, the season um, chose to screen it. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, any any time they're showing anything Stephen King, you know, we often talk about Stephen King on this podcast. We've even had a, an episode, uh, you know, de devoted completely to his films. And, um, uh, you, you know, he's still continuing to, to, to put good work out there and uh, we're all for it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Keith, you were in one of his uh, one of the dollar babies as well, weren't you? Oh, God. Well, you know, I didn't want to drop that, but now you mention it. <laughs> well, yes, only yes. dropping it because <laughs> it is a vampire story. It is, yes. Yes, I, I was in a... Stacey, you won't know this, I'm sure, because it's, it's a little-known film, but uh, I was in an adaptation of Popsy, which is one of the short stories from the Nightmares in Dreamscapes book. So um, I used to live out in the States, and uh, I, I got involved in a... Um, 
uh, and a production of that. So, uh, we, we, which, which sadly seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. But uh, oh well. <laughs> I was too bad. I was about to say I had to search this out. Yeah, I don't think it's available anywhere, which which is which is um, a shame. And unfortunately, I've kind of over the years lost touch with the uh, with the filmmaker. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a <laughs> a bit of a pity that it's not out there, or or or, or maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, moving on. Let's, let's, let, 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 we've got a whole podcast on that one as well. If anyone wants to yes. revisit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, obviously, this is a massive subject. Uh, you, you know, obviously not only in literature but in in movies as well. Uh, we gave you the very hard task of, of as our podcast name suggests, picking your movie heaven and movie hell out of the uh the the, the vampire movies um uh, over the history uh you, you know how have you found that task <laughs> um, it was both it was both challenging but actually when i really pushed myself i think that particularly the movie heaven was easier it was easy because i have such a Film. The movie Hell was more challenging because there are a lot of bad vampire films. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that, that's true. Are, I suppose there are. <laughs> so you know, I, it was about thinking through ones that were particularly worth talking about. Some of them you think are really bad, but I don't think you want to talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> what is it you think that uh, filmmakers get so wrong about vampires? Because there, there are a lot of bad vampire films out there. I think uh, I think there are a lot of things. I mean, partly I think it's often down to overplaying the kind of monstrousness. I think the acting of a vampire film is really important because um, you can ham it up and suddenly just people go over the top and what you want is something, often you don't need to do that. You want to play much more subtly, much more kind of internally uh, with, as opposed to this kind of exaggerated kind of monstrous effect. So often they just... It's like as soon as someone becomes a vampire, they just become kind of exaggerated and hysterical. And you just think that. Um, and so I think that is often one. Or overplaying the conventions. The best vampire films kind of have a creative relationship with that kind of history of iconography and, and don't feel they have to kind of jam everything in there, but kind of creatively play with the conventions and say, okay, let's. What can we bring in? What are we going to do? What are we, how are we going to play this character? So, uh, so of course, everybody knows that the main, uh, you know, the the most famous uh, vampire is Dracula. And uh, I was just wondering, what is your favourite version of that story? Now, that's a really hard question because there's so many mm. ones that I I love. Um, and I suppose I would, my purist, I would say that probably the 1922 Nosferatu, right. for all that it, it's um, it's not the most faithful adaptation. It really change, you know, it changes a lot. But I just think it has a real vision. It really, it really takes many of the elements from that story and really offers you something unsettling and scary and reimagines it in a very creative way. And it's still effective. I was watching it quite recently with my students, and I just find it still very, very effective. 
and un, uncanny. Mm. Um, that is one of my favorites. But I, I, I have a love. I was also watching Christopher Lee. So I think the first Hammer Dracula really holds up. And, and I love the, the, that Hammer reinvention of Dracula. Mm. So there are quite a few I like. They offer their own. There's a great quote from Nina Auerbach who writes about, who has written about Dracula, who says, you know, every generation has the Dracula they deserve. And there's something about that. I think, you know, we just keep reinventing Draculas and they all, if it's done well, then they'll speak to who we are at that moment. I have to say, uh, having read the book, um, I don't think anybody's really gotten close to actually getting the the spirit of it because it's it's kind of surprising especially the uh the third act this to, to sort of see the relationship between the the harkers uh van helsing and um sorry i've forgotten his name but the uh the american friend when they go yeah. chasing after dracula and I don't think any of the stories have really captured that relationship because you realize how close they are in the book and how that they're trying to do all this for Mina to try and save her. And I, I never, it never, even sort of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula didn't get that close to it really. If anything, that was the bit that they just sort of skipped over. You know, they went from, it, it just became an Indiana Jones red line from England to Transylvania. Yeah, no, <laughs> I agree. I think um, I think no one's ever fully captured the book. Um, part of it, I think it's a really dense, complicated book with lot. As you said, it has it has different like different acts that are each doing very different things, and people have fallen into for good or bad the the um, trap of focusing on Jonathan's journey to Transylvania and the Lucy um, moment when they all gather around trying to save her from mm. being. Um, being turned and then and the staking of Lucy and those become the kind of iconic set pieces Coppola is one of the only ones who's even you know really tried to has included all the male characters to actually try to create that kind of group of people working together and even make a nod towards the return to Transylvania mm. but it becomes more of a a western it's like the last sequences like you said you have the Indiana Jones map but you also have the stagecoach chase yeah and it, it, it they don't really capture that sense of the team working together in the way that the novel does I mean and of course the other thing as well is because it, it is a race to get to uh, uh, the castle because they're trying to um, outwit Dracula and his party because uh, I think isn't they they're going by canal and uh the other team are going by coach, so they're thinking of ways of trying to get ahead of the the boat. Yeah, and there's a and there's some really clever things in the book around communication because Mina at this point is turning into a vampire, so she is telepathically connected. Mm. So there's some really interesting things about the way in which she is tracking him. And she is able, through her, they're able to track where he is on their journey as they try to get ahead of him. And I think that works really well. Um, and no one's ever really captured that. Um, it, what's interesting is obviously there's lots of discussion at the moment of um, Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat adapting it to television. Right. At some point in a few years' time. It'll be really interesting to see if television is becomes a space where they explore some of those possibilities, some of those untapped elements of the book. 
because you have more time on television? Yes. Well, it depends on depends on how they want to do it. If they want to do it as a series or as a miniseries, because I think even as a, a miniseries, I, I don't think it would be enough time for for that story to be fully explored. Absolutely, but we'll see. Because other um, TV attempts at telling the story serially, um, recently the Jonathan Rhys Myers Dracula failed miserably at trying to do that because they didn't have the confidence to really tap into the book. They just mm. felt they'd make Downton Abbey with vampires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, it, it was a bit, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. It was. And, and in, in fairness, I think it was produced by the same company who makes Downton Abbey. I think that was quite self-conscious on their part. Um, and I don't think it worked because I don't think people who watched Downton Abbey wanted to watch this version of Dracula and people who wanted to see Dracula weren't happy with it being very Downton Abbey. So it was a miscalculation on their part. Right. Yeah, no, it was a bit. And and also, I mean, whilst we're on the subject of, of, of Dracula, if you like, I mean, I, I was always a big fan of the uh, the Francis Ford Coppola version and also obviously the, the sort of classic Bela Lugosi um, one as well. But uh, uh, what were your thoughts on the more recent uh, Dracula Untold movie, um, uh, if you saw it? <laughs> I, did see it. I did see it. Um I think, as an adaptation, it was not uh, a successful adaptation. I think it, it also struck me as it's called Dracula Untold, and watching it, I felt like it should have been called Dracula Has Been Told Many, Many Times, because I, I didn't feel like this idea of giving an origin story and inventing an origin story. They fell on so many familiar tropes of the Vlad the Impaler heritage, and this idea of linking it back to that particular story, which Coppola does. Um, I felt like these were very familiar. So what was supposedly new was, of course, this big heroic sacrifice he makes and the and the action spectacle of it, which was fine. Uh, you know, it was you know, lots of great CGI and, and entertaining uh, to a degree in that. But I just thought it didn't offer anything new despite the title promising something yeah. else. Yeah, it, it was more Dracula Begins they were trying to do, <laughs> <laughs> sort of turn him into this superhero and uh, yeah. as opposed to an anti-hero. And, um, uh, you, you know, interestingly, uh, I, I think that was one of their first attempts to try and uh, try and make this sort of franchise stroke shared universe thing, which which they abandoned and uh, did the even more terrible um mummy film instead <laughs> yeah, exactly mm. um, it was frustrating because you could see the in Dracula Untold the the potential for other offshoots I quite like Charles Dance as the rather Nosferatu like vampire who turns Dracula and he sort of shows up at the end and I kept thinking his is the movie I want to see like he was much more interesting and he turns up at the end so I kept thinking Maybe we could get past this. <laughs> I think there's another movie out there that would be a lot better. But clearly, it's not going to be made because it didn't, did not do well. And their their attempts to return to the horror franchise keeps failing because they don't want to make horror movies. They want to make action spect- spectaculars. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Where's the horror gone? Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, can I just? Um ask what did you think of the of dracula's origin in dracula 2000 when it turned out that he was actually judas i thought that was a really inspired idea 
Um, I think it's a film. I, I kind of wished it was in a better in a film. Better film. <laughs> yeah. Because the film is not. I mean, it's kind of, I've seen worse. It's fine. It's 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 you know it's completely run of the mill kind of B movie Dracula, but it had this really great idea of him being Judas, and I thought that was an inspired idea. And if you had a stronger film, who could do something that could do something more with that? But I remember coming out like two-thirds away thinking, I know what this film is. And when that revelation comes, thinking, oh, wow, this film is actually far more interesting. But they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And they, they throw it out there, and, and then it just be, it returns to being a rather hackneyed Dracula. Tip cliche, Dracula's brides, just being rather monstrous. And, and there was nothing terribly interesting about it. But I thought that, actually, no, there was one other thing I thought was interesting. The, Dra- the Judas thing I like. The other thing I liked about that was the Van Helsing staying alive by injecting himself with vampire blood in mm. order to stay alive in order to fight the vampire. And I quite like that idea of the vampire hunter having to become monstrous himself in order to defeat vampire. And again, the film isn't strong enough to do anything with it. Yes. The nugget of a nice idea. Indeed. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, 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 again, it's a huge subject. Uh, just, just, yeah. just that one aspect of vampire, yeah. uh, movies. So, um, uh, moving on to your actual pick then, uh, I'll be, I'll be honest, I'm rather pleased that you picked this, which we'll come on to, but do you, do you want to tell us what you've picked and why? Yes. Okay. So for my, um, vampire heaven, I picked, um, Catherine Bigelow's 1987 film near dark. Um, <laughs> I picked for many reasons. Um, on a very personal note, it is really is one of my favorite films. I watch it. I teach it every year with my students, so I watch it every year, uh, and I'm always pleased by the reactions it gets because, unlike the other vampire film that came out the same year, um, The Lost Boys, which most people are very familiar with, I'm always surprised by Near Dark is far more cult and, and has less of that kind of more not appeal. Therefore, it feels like a little treasure to reveal to students. Um, and they always really, really like it. Uh, and so it's, it is one of my favorites. Um, I picked it because I think it, uh, I mean, we'll talk in more detail, but I think it is innovative and exciting in what it was, how it was trying to reimagine the vampire in ways that were incredibly creative, um, and it's visually stunning. So there are a number of factors. Also, also, it's 30 years old this year, so it feels like a nice... Oh, God. Yeah, that's scary. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, so it's a, I think it's a really, um, a really powerful film and really creative. Um, and Catherine Bigelow, it was her second... Directorial, it was her second outing as a director, but it was her first solo directing experience. That's uh, correct. She, yeah, she had previously co directed. But so it's an incredibly confident, uh, aesthetically stunning film that she um, sets. For those who haven't seen it, it's a va- effectively a vampire western. Uh, it is set in the Midwest of the United States and it reimagines the vampires as sort of Western outlaws or road movie outlaws, depending on your perspective. Uh, and I think it's the genre hybridity of it, the way in which it brings together those Western motifs with the vampire are incredibly powerful. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad you, uh, you picked this one because um, we did last year, we did do um, uh, an episode on Catherine Bigelow. And uh, I was very tempted um, to, to pick it, actually. Uh, but, but obviously, she's got such a, a good list of movies and obviously is continuing to do great movies. She got Detroit out at the moment um, that, that uh, you, you know, it was it was hard so it's really great when you said that this was going to be your pick i thought fantastic because we can get into this yeah um i i never i saw it i guess sometime in the early 90s when it uh it got a um it got like a sort of midnight showing at, at a local um cinema to me and and i and i watched it and uh was very sort of taken by it and um uh, impressed by it to the point that uh, when I went to film school a few years later, it was actually there was a list of films that we had to do a um, we were asked to do a presentation on, and Near Dark was in that list. Uh, but it was a list that had things, you know, other great films like uh, Chinatown and Godfather and things like that. I can't remember who, what was on the entire list. And I thought to myself, I bet. I'm the only person that's going to pick this. And, and I, and I was, and, um, I did my presentation on it and really, you know, I, it made me think, well, why was this on the list? And, and my thought on that was the fact that it was a, a very different take on the, on the vampire, um, story, you know, taking away a lot of the, the Gothic aspects and, and putting it as a sort of contemporized, uh, Western, instead yeah. and um you, you know kind of uh you know gushed about it and um you, you know the, the the lecturer said you absolutely hit the nail on the head he was really happy with my presentation and 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 that's exactly why he'd pushed put it on the list because he felt even though it was a sort of cult little known film he felt that it really did deserve some merit for um for pushing boundaries and some subverting expectations and stuff on this on this genre and uh and without by the way ever mentioning the word vampire anywhere you know which was cool as well <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely i think for me that was one of the things that first struck me was just that this was so fresh and felt like you know you knew exactly what you were watching they never say vampire but you know exactly what these creatures are but you are seeing it through very modern eyes and, and thinking through what if you were a vampire today, this is what they would do. They would haunt the roads, the back highways of America and just stalk these old, you know, motels and bars. And, and there's something really, really, really frightening about this kind of dark underside of the road and the kind of small town um, Midwest US. So it was, it was such a creative rethinking. I suppose one of the other things I also really liked about it is the fact, I mean, one of the draws of the vampire uh, is that we are, that they are both frightening, but very attractive, but that can be physically, but also can be in terms of an allure. And one of the things I like about the, about Near Dark is the fact that it captures that sense of these outlaws are terrifying because they do really horrible things in this film. But there's something really attractive about how they interact with each other. They're very funny. Um, and it really creates, a, there's, for me, I find it very morally ambiguous about how I feel. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, part of the story is about turning this young boy, Caleb, who's, you know, this sort of 18-year-old boy, and he gets sort of turned, and it's about whether or not he can become a vampire. And those moments when you're, you're just willing him, just do it, just do it. You know, give in, become this. And yet, standing back going, what am I saying? <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no I, I, had a, I had similar feelings in the fact that you, you can't help but kind of like this, yeah. this dysfunctional family as, as they are really sort of on a road, road movie with a dysfunctional family in a sort of modern day Western. And, and you, kind of, you kind of really like these characters, even though the things they're doing are completely awful. You know, like, I mean, the, the, the bar scene, which is one of my favorite scenes of the film, um, when you actually, entertaining as that is, when you actually think about it, what they do is absolutely horrible. You know, it's it's, it, but 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 it works. <laughs> it's brutal. I mean, in anecdotally, because when I the way I came across the film is I came like you. I didn't see it on its release. I had heard about it, but I worked when I was a university when I was a student at university. I worked for the audiovisual department, and um, the, my boss was a big fan of it. So to tell me to watch this film, she showed me the barroom scene, and that was the first thing I ever saw from Near Dark. And said, no, you have to see this film, watch the scene, you'll want to go back. And I just love that scene because it was brutal. It was beautifully shot. Like, the lighting is incredible. Um, and these characters are funny and disturbing. And they're a unit. They work together in a way that most of the other characters and the human characters seem far more dysfunctional because they're, they don't seem to work together or they seem more fractured, whereas they just work together as a unit. And... I really love that tension it creates where I just feel like I want these characters to survive and I want them to win because they are, and yet what they do is horrible without a doubt. Well, it's the, as you say, it's, it's the, the allure of um, both the open road and the fact that you can, you know, turn away from your life. You don't have to worry about a nine to five job. You don't have to worry about bills. You know, the only thing yeah. you have to worry about is, um, you know, feeding, you know, uh, stalking people for blood, but uh, yeah. and daylight and daylight. And daylight. Oh, of course, and daylight. <laughs> and daylight. Yeah. daylight is made for theme in the film. They spend yes. a lot of time running for daylight. But again, that's one of the things I like about it is that sense that they are just living in the moment. They're always in the moment. So they don't have a plan. They never have a know where they're going to go. So they are always on the run. But there's an exhilaration to that. You know, will they get to their next hideout? Will they get to the next um, motel where they can sleep through the day? And there is something about that kind of exhilaration of just them always living in the moment. Mm. And, not, you know, these are not Draculas with their coffins full of earth, you know, carefully located everywhere that, where they, he may need them. You know, he plans, Dracula plans ahead. These vampires don't. But that's, again, part of what makes them exciting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, their experiences, not conceptualizers, you know, which is which is kind of interesting because, like you said, absolutely, Dracula was a, you know, conceptualizer, and he he obviously, like like you said, planned for the future and planned these things. Whereas um, you're absolutely right; these guys are making it up as they go along, and and the only the only thing they've got prepared as is sort of uh you know tin foil and spray paint in case they need to block out the sunlight 
and they're constantly walking around with this sort of layers of ash where they've been caught in the sun and slightly burned. So they're constantly dirty and kind of ash covered, but just kind of then moving on. They just heal up and then recover and move on and never seem phased. Which is very, again, really ties into this idea. Well, also the fact that these vampires are a, a lot younger vampires compared to Dracula. I mean, if we believe that Dracula has been around for hundreds of years, and yet um, um, the the eldest, uh, the leader of this pact, the one who's played by Lance Henriksen, you know, uh, he was turned back in the American Civil War. So it's only been like a, a couple of hundred years that he's been alive. Absolutely. I mean, it's a very much, and it, it's very much a new world vampire story. So it's, you know, it is a, a, there are a lot of films that have done this, but I think it's one of the best Americanizations of the vampire story of saying, we're going to do this story and we're going to make it a new world story. And yes, they're young vampires. They may talk about for being around forever, but you know, May, who's the, the female lead of the film, is, has been a vampire for five years. You know, she is barely a baby of, oh. as a vampire. In vampire terms but there but it really captures again i think part of that energy is because they are re it's a very careful rethinking of a vampire to americanize it in an interesting way not in a kind of we're just gonna we're just gonna dump it in the u.s and kind of make it american but we're gonna think through the western landscape these this kind of desert because it's a stupid place for vampires to live mm. you know in the sun-drenched desert spaces like this is not logical there's a reason why Transylvania is conceptually this really this idea of the dark forest of Transylvania. You know, these places make sense for vampires. The desert doesn't. But if you end up there, it works really well dramatically. Mm. And visually, uh, those spaces tell, you know, it, the story sheds its gothic tropes by losing castles and graveyards and all of those things. But the contrast between light and dark in these, these twilight spaces that the film exists on, because they're always chasing, running away from the sun, is, I think, very gothic, but a very modern gothic. Well, I imagine they picked the desert as well, because it's a good place to hide all those bodies, because uh, it's out in the wilderness like that, people go missing all the time. So, you know, it, it, if, it, if they were city-based, then uh, uh, I think people would start noticing. Uh, completely. You would have invest police investigators and... You know, you suddenly have to worry about forensics, mm. and that would be a whole other. Well, that is a whole other vampire film. That's Martin. <laughs> Martin does a lot of worrying about yeah. covering his tracks. Whereas you're right in the desert. You know, you just dump the bodies, and people do disappear on the road. Yeah. It's set within an underclass, a world where people go missing, and there's no real accounting for that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the, the the other thing that's so genius about this film as well is, you, you know, even though it's a, uh, you know, a relatively low budget film, um, you, you, you know, both both Catherine Bigelow and and, and the cast's uh, attention to detail and, and layering of this film it, it is, you know, really, really amazing as well. I mean, right down to things like the the the, the props, the costumes and 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 the uh the, the the hairstyles and stuff it's it, it you know nothing has been sort of not thought about and not analyzed and and it's funny because you, you know those are the things that that are there that that aren't mentioned but make all of the difference in terms of selling and making this believable and giving it some depth 
and um, you, you know, I, I think I think a really impressive sort of first film for 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 a young female director at the Absolutely. time. You know, this this was incredible. Absolutely, and I think one of the things that really works is the casting of the three main vampires: um, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and is it Jeanette Goldstein? Jeanette yes. Goldstein, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. who of course had just appeared in um james cameron's aliens together yes and there's 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 a there's a lovely shot in the film where you actually see aliens playing in the background and this wasn't and this wasn't put in this was actually a happy accident that happened while filming there's something about watching that film with those three together because Mm. they really work well together they feel like a unit and we have this you know particularly the you know as looking back on it now there just feels like this kind of cultural inheritance of that unit and i think um it was i mean she did cast them because they had been an alien she she knew their work and thought they would be perfect but i think it, had, it just built the legacy i don't think she probably anticipated um just how much impact having the three of them together again would have on audiences in terms of just seeing them as this incredibly effective unit and yeah. it partly lends itself to our emotional attachment attachment to them if you're a fan of aliens that somehow they there there's a greater impact on having those three together mm. yeah oh definitely i mean i think i think you know i ha- i have to confess like i said i saw this in the uh the the early 90s when it got a sort of midnight re-release type thing and um part of my reasoning behind going to see it at the time was probably because it did feature you know some of the cast of of, of aliens <laughs> you, you know sad as that might be it, it was probably one of the uh, one of the salesy points to me at the time but um but and i also heard a rumor somewhere and i, d- I don't know whether this is just one of those sort of fan speculative things that have that has retrospectively come out but um I heard that uh, the part of Caleb was actually offered to Michael Bean at the time, but he he passed on it. And uh, I, I don't know whether that, that could have been maybe slightly too full on the nose, maybe. <laughs> I've, I've heard that story as well. And I can't remember if I've heard it from a solid source, but I've heard that circulate as well. And it may have been a bit too on the nose. Um, although I, can sort, I could see him playing it. I could see him doing that character, although probably a little bit too old. Mm. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think he would be too old for the part. I mean, even even when he did Terminator, uh, he still looked a lot older there than uh, yeah. Caleb does. Yeah, Caleb, yeah. we're supposed to believe Caleb is kind of on the cusp of, you know, is around 18 years old, you know, kind of cusp of manhood. And yeah, I think Michael Bean would have been too old. But in terms of personality, I could sort of see that thinking. But mm. um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I and I feel I mean you know as we're while we're talking about the cast and particularly the the the, the, the aliens related <laughs> cast um you know I I feel that here um you know deserves a mention I mean sadly you know last year again way too early but we we way too before his time we we lost Bill Paxton and um, in this film I mean you know he clearly has a wonderful time playing this character and uh you know that that scene in the bar i mean he is on fire isn't he you know <laughs> I, I love the whole you know the the, the quotables the the finger looking good and the uh you, you, you know hate them when they don't shave and the you and all that stuff i mean he, he he really really does absolutely nail that scene and um 
you, you know, su- such a shame that, that, that that actor is no longer with us, you know, but, but this, this is, this is him in his, in his shining glory, I feel. <laughs> mm. I believe a lot of it was, uh, if not improvised, but then, you know, um, made bigger than it was in the script. It was. I read. I read the script earlier this year, um, and you can see elements of it there. You know, you can see, but absolutely, he embellishes mm. and um, the finger looking good. I think that is definitely. I think that is an improvisation. Uh, <laughs> like the, 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 the kind of core narrative moment, and the fact that it's a standout moment for that character for Severin is there. But how it stands out is all down to him. I mean, he is outstanding. And again, in, in a way that just gets that line between brutality, because it's a brutal scene of him. Like he is the one who does some, you know, he has the razor blade spur. He slits someone's throat with it. Um, you know, it's, it's brutal. But he is so funny that he locks into the sense of sympathy for them. You just love these guys, despite what you're watching them do. Yeah. Yeah, well, I hadn't realized until I rewatched it um uh for this actually is I, I always felt sorry for the uh for 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 the one guy in the bar, the 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 guy that was just in there to shoot some pool, sort of minding his own business. And I hadn't realized that was actually James LaGrosse. It was obviously a, an early role for him. And I'd never really sort of uh, made that connection until I watched it the other night. I was like, oh wow. <laughs> so I've forgotten that too. <laughs> so uh, nice little kind of moments and little i mean it's a, it, i think it's a it's a good important film for a lot of people's early careers mm. i mean us this thing um having I, i've done like another podcast about uh near dark and a lot of people always sort of we always talk about like the vampires and caleb and that storyline but we never really touch upon the the father storyline the one where you know that he goes out searching for his son you know there's there's you you get the sense of home is still there still beckoning him still trying to find him and you know it's it's just it's so well done because you know the police can't help him you know they've done their best but you know these these things happen you know young boys they run away and um and also the fact that um you know he comes up with a a, a way of curing vampirism <laughs> i must admit this is one of the only films where they come up with a cure for vampirism that isn't killing the head vampire yes yes uh yeah. it's it's an interesting idea of curing the vampirism. Um, I mean, going back to your statement, the father, I mm. agree with you. Him, I think if you're going to have a story which is about Caleb choosing between two worlds, do I become this monster? Do I become a vampire and follow my heart, which is because I'm in love with this girl? Or do I go back to family? The family is really important. Otherwise, you don't believe the tension. Like, So yeah. I think the, the father looking for him. And there's some very touching moments between the father and daughter. I, I quite like the, the image of the daughter, of the sister, Caleb's sister, um, asleep, hugging her brother's cowboy hat. Mm. And there are these like, nice little moments of, of affection that you see that they really are quite desperate to find her. So you sort of believe that there is, there's home on both sides. The one that has this exhilarating new world of romance and excitement. <laughs> and a bizarrely functional family. They are a strangely functional unit. The vampires, mm. yeah. but then this 
slightly more fragmented because they're, they're, we don't know where the mother is. It's a non-traditional family. But there's a lot of love there and a lot of um, unity as well. So you have to believe that tension, believe that Caleb is, is really facing a, a moral dilemma. Um, and then the, the, trans, the, the transfusion cure, I think, is a very clever way of, of progressing the narrative. So it doesn't just come about, oh, we're going to find a way to cure the characters, which, of course, has its own history with Dracula. Mm. So there's a kind of connection there, but taking it to, to a new new conclusion. And of course, uh, the end of the film when we see Maze being cured, and that that final shot of her hugging him, and that look on her face, um, it's one of those shots, one of those endings that is it's very ambiguous for how that character feels because you get a sense that. Um, as much as she's happy to see the sunlight and she's not being burnt by it, you, you also get a sense that um, this is not what she wanted. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because if you read about the film, a lot of people have read the film quite conservatively, saying, you know, it has a happy ending and you get the restoration of this couple, so it's all very heteronormative. You know, yes, we're going to bring this romantic couple back together and, and have this romantic ending. And I've never read it that way. To me, I read it much more like you. It's ambiguous. Mm. We don't see it running off into the sunshine all happily. Um, which actually, if you read the original script, was in the the original script has a, a, a an ambiguous ending as well. But it does end with the two of them running out into the sunshine. No, which they, it, where it gets dark is the fact that it ends. The script ends with the two of them running off into the sunshine. But the younger sister Sarah steps out into the sunshine and she starts to burn. And you realize she has actually been turned. Oh right. So the, oh, okay. It was an interesting choice there. Um, so they were still going in the original conception, still wanting an ambiguous or slightly darker ending. But I think, but obviously, when you've introduced the notion of a cure, I think it undercuts that. And mm. I think that's why yeah. they didn't go with it because I think they wanted a, dark, a, a, a an ambiguous ending, and the cure undermines that. Yeah. So I think ending it on that freeze frame of her. I find really ambiguous because she hasn't chosen this. He's done this to her. Yeah. She, she chose to to stay with him, but not become human again. And he does this to her, and she looks quite frightened and not happy. And I think for a character like May, and we haven't spoken about May yet, I think one of the things that's interesting about her, for all that she does, she equally does horrible things as a vampire. She gets a pleasure out of being a vampire that's quite different from the other characters who seem to embrace and, and wallow in the violence. For her, it's about her heightened senses and the fact that she can see and hear in ways that you can't as a human. And she just loves being out in the night and, and she, she celebrates this, this possibility of immortality. And all of that's taken away from her. And I think that's a real loss. And I think that ending captures that loss, that she is, this is not necessarily a happy ending. It's sort of happy because she's not dead and he's not dead. <laughs> but, you know, is this the future she wants? Kind of being human, living on a farm? Yeah. Really, you know, yeah, but, no, I mean, the, 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 the slight ambiguity, I, I think, works. And I think the other thing that's nice about this is it does totally work as a standalone movie. Um, 
and you know fortunately we haven't had a nearer dark or no. anything like that, <laughs> like, like, like that you know <laughs> to, 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 to yeah. follow up you know as, as they sometimes try and do with these cult films you know <laughs> it's like oh we've got to make another one now um and, 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 <laughs> so so you know it is one of those um like, like you said lost boys is the sort of film of that era that everybody seems to know about but this one yeah. is is the one that's uh you know, in my opinion, better, um, but also it, it's it's amazing that, that 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 there is, even though it's got a cult following, it's amazing that there is, you know, a, a generation out there that just don't know about this film. And um, you, you know, hope, hopefully, if people listen to stuff like this, they might go out there and discover it. <laughs> so you know, yeah. Turn out that like the British Film Institute has screened it for various seasons. You know, it does pop up. But I, it's been interesting watching this year lots of acknowledgement of the Lost Boys anniversary. And you know, there's talk of a new. And going back to what you were saying about you know continuing the Lost Boys story, there are sequels. There's a t- planned television series. You know, that is a text that people are running with. And Near Dark is this kind of wonderful little gem. That people know, some people, if you're in the know, but it, it really has maintained a cultness to it. I think it serves it well because, mm. because it means no one has gone back to say, let's revisit this. Or Catherine Bigelow is now so famous, let's try to you know, get her to do a sequel, which fortunately she's not that kind of filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, and, I'm, and I mean, Catherine Bigelow, to her credit as well, still... Um, you know, talks really fondly of this film because, like, I, I was I was lucky enough to go. Uh, they had a Q and A with with Detroit um, recently, and of course, everybody wants to talk about her last three or four films, which have been, you know, y- y- very serious films about real, you know, social issues and wars and things of that nature. Whereas, um, uh, and you know, history, historical moments and things. Whereas. Uh, you, you know, this this is this is an all-out genre film, and um, you, you know, without anybody else mentioning it, she she brings it up in conversation, and and right. and you know, says still says that without that, she wouldn't be anywhere. So um, you, you know, I love the fact that she's not embarrassed of it because it's a genre movie, and you know, she's making these important films now. Um, I'm liking the fact that you know. She, she still embraces it, and, and I think rightly so, you know? <laughs> no, completely. And because it's interesting, because her, her early part of her career was built on genre. So she did her first film was a motorcycle movie, and then a vampire movie, and then a police, you know, police a, a procedural film, and then um, a science fiction. You know, she embraced genre, and it is good that she's, she's not kind of turning her back on that, because in a way, she's working within a different genre now. Just, it is this kind of social realist, contemporary, political dramas, um, but she still has which that. are fantastic as well. You know, I, mean, I, I love those equally. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. She still has that kind of high octane um, pacing that I think is consistent across all of her work. You know, that she she works, um, she constructs these very pressurized action oriented but action not in the kind of cliche way but in a sense where it's all about pacing and energy and tension that i think is consistent across all of her films and it's why they're so effective well she's very good at doing thrillers i mean she she certainly knows how to do you know edgier seat stuff and also the high octane stuff because um 
like the remake of uh, Point Break was nothing in comparison to the to original. I mean, it's very Point Break. The original is very is a very eighties film, but it's still thrilling. It's still enjoyable. I mean, it's still some great moments, and it's probably one of the better characters that Keanu Reeves has ever played. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I watched it recently. I didn't see the remake of Point Break, but I did rewatch the original, and I think you're right. It, it's it, we often say, oh, it feels very eighties. I mean, Near Dark feels very eighties as well. It has a dream, dream score. You know, it has a synthesized score. It feels very eighties in in some ways, but I don't think that's a problem. It, no. it's, it's where it came from, and I think Point Break. I think is absolutely one of the best action films come out of the 80s in the sense of offering quite fresh characters. The relationship between the two leads really works. Um, yes, it's very 80s. It's very Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze. It's of that period, the hair, the, you know, hair designs, <laughs> all of that period. But there's something. But it, it's effective. It works. Yeah. It's, well, it's energetic. I would say the only thing that does make the uh, near dark eighties is is the synth score, but it's a it is a great score. I actually own the the soundtrack, and it's it's amazing the sort of um, the sort of different tones. And I don't mean the different tones being used in the synth, but the different tones that it portrays because it goes yeah. from quite you know um, beautiful to to very dark in, in like a heartbeat. Yeah, I mean it, it, you know. Tangerine Dream, they really were the sort of go-to uh, go-to guys around this time, weren't they? And uh, but but yeah, you, you know, it is very distinctive, but it but it works very well in the in the movie. And again, it's one of the things that sort of sets it aside from the from from the tropes of of what was a vampire movie up until that that time. You know, um, mm. even down to the score. So yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, it's it's amazing what a what a you know what a what a great movie this is and and I'm so glad you know with with the plethora of um, movies that there are to choose from in the in the sort of vampire uh, genre I'm I'm really I was so I was delighted when I saw your email I almost shouted out yes because uh, when, when I when I saw you pick this because we we literally said to you you know pick whatever you want your movie heaven from mm. from the history of vampire movies and uh when, when this one came up i was just yeah i was so happy i was like fantastic we get to talk about near dark as well that's brilliant <laughs> so so thank you <laughs> <laughs> um i i just want to say before uh we sort of move on uh see i i've made a, a vampire film called uh blood and roses and near dark was one of the influences on that film um and when it came to cutting the first trailer, I actually used one of the tracks from the uh, Near Dark soundtrack. I mean, I couldn't use it because copyright reasons. But it was amazing how this one piece of music fitted the trailer perfectly. I didn't cut to the, I didn't cut the footage to the trailer. It was more or less a scene from the film, and it just cut together so beautifully. And it's such a shame that. Um, you know, I couldn't afford the rights to it because I think it would have made the trailer, you know. Well, the trailer was good, but I mean, it, it could have been a hell of a lot better with, yeah. uh, with that score. And it was kind of a score that I was trying to get for my film and we weren't as successful. Uh, the original composer didn't, I don't think, got got close to it. And so we, we went a different way in the end. But, um, but yeah, but, um, 
things like um, the way that they would smoke in uh, in the in sunlight was again something we we tried to emulate and uh, failed. <laughs> we just didn't have the budget for it all the time. It's a really tough. It's it's funny. It's one of those things that you can take for granted, but it's actually a tough effect to pull off mm. well. Uh, and I think they do a really good job, and I can imagine it being really hard to recreate. Cause, yeah. You know, so you know, in a way, it becomes so natural you don't even notice it. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was done with tubes filled with cigar smoke, if if if, if yeah. memory serves. I think there was a thing on one of the. Um, I got the. Uh, the, the DVD, DVD of yeah. a yeah the Anchor Bay sort of yeah. all singing or dancing DVD and uh, um, they yeah they had a little bit of a sort of behind the scenes thing or well it's more of a retrospective um, of yeah. the time which uh, and uh, yeah I think they said they achieved it with they made some rig that pumped cigar smoke through tubes that were hidden in the costume or just below the costume or something and that the, the cast said they just they just reeked of stogies by the end of uh, by the end of the shoot you know yeah. <laughs> but uh, it does it, yeah it's very effective it's definitely part of that film's iconography and um again very different to what we what we'd seen previously i think yeah um of course they, they do it all with cgi now obviously yeah i mean also it's a film that it needs a really good blu-ray release i mean the one we've got over here is i have to say awful i mean the the the, the film itself looks great on blu-ray but the cover oh man they they try and do uh twilight oh no yeah oh, no. And of course, and this is and this is so. And the thing that really fucking annoys me is that Near Dark has one of the best posters ever, with yes. um, you know, with the guy with his hands up and the beams coming. And I mean, I remember seeing that in the the video shop. I mean, that was the one of the things that drew me to the film was seeing that image on the cover, and for them to completely drop it and just have a, this really crappy Photoshop Twilight thing was ah. Oh. I mean, the fact as well, I think, I've got it here. Let me have a look, because I think, no, okay, they don't have fangs, but it, it they, they do give Caleb a very pale complexion. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I must admit, I usually use Movie Heaven, Movie Hell to sort of refresh my... Um, collection like so if i've got something on dvd i usually go out and buy the blu-ray or whatever but uh yeah because because there was no real sort of advantage to uh to to doing it because because the one i've got the the uh thx certified dvd anyway so yeah. uh it's yeah. you know it's pretty it's pretty good and it's got loads of extras and you know all that stuff, but uh, near near dark definitely deserves some some love in the in the Blu-ray camp. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> it needs a Scream Factory or Anchor release. Yeah, indeed, indeed, yes. So, anything else, uh, Stacey? You know why you've got the opportunity to to gush and wax lyrical about um, near dark? A a anything else that you want to add? Um, there's so much to say. Um, I suppose one of the things oh. I'm Thinking, yeah, I know. One of the things <laughs> about kind of burning in the sun, I suppose one of the things I liked about the film, I think why it's always stayed with me and why I think it's it's so effective is because in a way that effect 
that idea of just reducing, we're not going to have steaks, we're not going to have garlic, we're removing everything, and it's just the sun that is a threat to them. And because they spend so much of the time burning in the sun, they become very human in a way, like in the sense they, they really suffer pain, even if they just kind of, you know, move on. I, there's something about this idea of just them burning in the sun and them being quite vulnerable in that way. It's the only way they're vulnerable. And I find that really effective. And it, it, it becomes part of that kind of humanization. Yes, they have superpowers, they have super strength, they can't die traditionally, but they suffer, they feel pain. And I think that also lends itself to the complexity of this story, that they are um, far more human. They don't have the superpowers of, of Dracula and telepathy and hypnosis and all that kind of transformation. They're, they're locked in their bodies and they're defined by their bodies. And I find that really an interesting shift, in the, particularly in the 1980s, when we become so body-focused. And suddenly you have these vampires that are just trapped in these bodies that are strong but vulnerable. And I find that really just one of the things I love about it. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, I mean, you, you know, like I said, so pleased that you picked this and so glad that we got to give it a little bit of air time. Um, but, but, but there's, there's never enough time to say everything, but, uh, uh, we always find that, but that's part of it. Yeah. But yeah. With, 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 with every good story and every good film and every, you know, celebrated film and, uh, sadly in our format of movie heaven, movie hell comes, comes the flip side of the coin so uh pains me as it does to ask you but um <laughs> what what and why have you picked for oh. movie hell <laughs> this was a really hard choice because there's a lot um and i spent a lot of time thinking about you know hell uh, and, and it was tough because there's a lot of mediocre bad vampire films but you know not this but there's nothing to talk about they're just bad so I chose one that I think actually, and it's one that I obviously, for obvious reasons, have not watched as often. <laughs> but I, that stood out to me at the time that I think was worth talking about, which was Dracula 3000. We mentioned Dracula 2000, <laughs> but we went to Dracula 3000. So I was not the previous pleasure of watching Dracula 3000. Um, I can't believe I bought it for this. <laughs> oh my, you didn't. Oh my God. <laughs> I couldn't find it, so I, I bought it on, on DVD, yeah. But anyway. Back to 3000 is a, a science fiction hybrid vampire film, so I thought it made a nice comparable comparison mm. to your drug. You know, a very successful vampire western versus a not-so-successful su- 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 um, vampire science fiction film in which the entire story Dracula's reset in space because um, <laughs> <laughs> remember in space there is no daylight <laughs> yes <laughs> even though they're heading towards twin suns <laughs> it's just so this, I mean, there are lots of things to kind of highlight why this is you know movie hell um, and no disrespect to the person, but any film from this period that stars Casper Van Diem is always possibly a sign of, with the exception of Starship Troopers, is a mm. sign of this is not necessarily going to be a strong outing. Yeah. Um, it is a film that does everything 
opposite to what we've been talking about with Near Dark, which says we're going to update Vampire Star, we're going to update Dracula by making it in space and making it science fiction, but actually just does everything in a ham-fisted way and does that, you know, there's no point to this except to say, hey, we're going to have Dracula in space. Yeah. So we're going to Captain Van Helsing um, <laughs> in the, what is it, in the uh, constellation of Transylvania, no, of Transylvania, and you know, you were just no Carpathian, the, the, the Carpathian, Carpathian system or something, <laughs> which I laughed out loud at. Yeah, something from Trans- the, the Transylvania station, yeah. We're just going to rewrite space along Gothic lines. Yeah. <laughs> Is a half-fisted attempt to modernize it. Of uh, modernize it, um, it is so obviously saying, okay, we're going to do Dracula in space, but we're just going to make it try to make. We're going to try to make it look like Alien because we're going to have lots of people running through dark corridors in spaceships. <laughs> Sorry, that, that, I think somebody forgot to tell the DOP that because they're very brightly lit corridors. Exactly, <laughs> right? It's got no atmosphere. Yeah. Uh. And. When Saying earlier about what people get wrong, I would think one of the things I had in mind when I see people, the kind of over-the-top performances of vampires is when one of the crew, the first crew, gets turned into a vampire. You mean Coolio. Coolio. <laughs> he becomes this kind of insane, monstrous figure leaping around. Like, I, you just kind of go, what direction was he given to play this? It's, yeah. it's yeah. just... It's so yeah. ridic- and ridiculously long fangs. Actually, I think people underestimate the significance of how you design fangs in a vampire film. Well, it's a lot of effort. if you yes. don't have like near dark, doesn't go the fang route. Right, yeah. Uh, there's there's a reason for that. I, I there's there's a, a real reason for that, and the the reason is having done it is that it's really difficult to talk with fangs in your mouth. Uh, the one thing that a lot of the actors had problems with was talking with fangs in the mouth. So when anybody speaks in my film, they don't have fangs. The fangs appear when they're going to bite anybody. That it's um I don't know. So I think that was the the major problem they were having was so they have these big fangs in their mouth and they go, right, do the dialogue. You know, it, a lot of it comes out. Yeah. I mean, I mean, with, with this film, I kind of feel, feel like what, what, what sort of happened was obviously a couple of years prior, um, they sort of did this with the, the Friday the 13th franchise. Yeah. By yes, Jason X. Jason, yeah. Jason X. Yeah. Having Jason in yeah. space and, you know, somebody thought, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea to put Dracula in in, in space? But, uh, yeah, I mean, th- th- one of the things that struck me also is 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 in nearly a thousand years, ha- how little we, we've evolved because <laughs> the, the, the characters in this are are quite sort of, you know, st- stuck in in two dimensional stereotype tropes from the <laughs> from the 80s or something i mean yeah. it's 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 like you know what this was made in 2004 or whenever but uh, but yeah I, I didn't buy not not just from the production design but i also didn't buy from the uh fr- from the thematics and the script and everything that this was this this was supposed to be set in the the year 3000 i don't know about any of you guys <laughs> <laughs> no you know, they in fact they read more. They feel more like a cast from, and you mentioned Friday Thirteenth in space. They just they do feel like 
you know, extras from a slasher movie that have just been dumped in space so they can be disposed of. Yeah. It's kind of not even creative ways. They even have the creativity of putting them off in interesting ways. They just all get killed by a vampire. Or yeah. 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 I mean, that's exactly what I mean. You know, what one can sometimes forgive, you know, we, we've all, we, we all know how difficult it is to make a film, uh, particularly if you haven't got budget, it's etc. So you can forgive those sort of things, but just down to the actual writing and development of this, it, it, it just seems that it was something that was, it, it felt like it was knocked out really quickly rather than like we said with, with near dark, you know, you could actually see where the, where Catherine Bigelow and the actors had, had sort of thought about this and workshopped it and spent time sort of shaping and developing it. This just kind of felt like um, it was first draft material to yeah. me. And I, yeah. I, I don't know whether I'm just being ultra cruel or what, but, uh, you, you know, it really did, you know, down to the, the, the actual forgetting the performances and, and the production design and, and photography, et cetera, but just down to the actual script itself, it felt really thin. And, um, the, 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 you, you know, I, I actually think conceptually the, the, the idea could have been quite good, but, um, you, you know, right, right down to, you've even already mentioned the names and to, to start with, I was thinking, oh, well, they, they, you know, they use the names as a slight sort of nod mm. to the source material, but it turns out that these are actually supposed to be like ancestors or yeah. whatever of those characters, which again, made no sense at all for the war to be in that one space, you know, <laughs> in, in inverted commas. <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing about this film was it, uh, again, talking about posters, is it, it has a very sort of intriguing poster. This sort of uh, kind of cyberpunk vampire skull with why, and you think, oh wow, this 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 vampire is going to look, you know, really scary. It's going to, you know, it's going to be more of a creature than a than a person. And then it, when you sit, finally see him, he's a guy in a very bad Dracula outfit. It's a guy in a tuxedo trying to ape Christopher Lee, you basically, isn't it? You know, it's like, come on. No, no absolutely. They never got, I think the problem is it, it is, in a way, it doesn't have the respect for its source material or mm. the genre. It doesn't have the respect for the genre because it never gets beyond, we're going to put Dracula in space. That's the only reason they made it. Yeah. We're going to do that. And so they didn't conceive of, to even think through, okay, what does that mean? What could that mean? I think you're right about the poster. All kinds of interesting things. A space set, vampire tale to be. But it, they, they don't get beyond it. And they don't have that respect for it. So they just trot out what they think the vampire tale means. So we have, yeah. a, 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 we have a room full of coffins. Despite the fact people are like, okay, this is, this is three, year 3000. I don't know, wouldn't they maybe have slightly different ways of trying you know, tra uh, moving bodies? Wouldn't the coffins maybe look different? Why would they just look like coffins from today? Yeah. Um, it just feels, it, there's no thought. No. Yeah. It, it's no, very exactly, cheaply exactly. done. And I just want to sort of mention Toby Hooper again. I mean, he made a very good Vampires in Space film with Life Force. Yeah. Exactly, uh, yes. Life Force is a really interesting film that says, okay, we're going to have Vampires in Space. Um, and we're going to think through what that can mean. So mm. they don't necessarily do the same things. They are much more about they're about kind of sucking out your spirit and your energy, and you get those wonderful effects of mm. the, the 
being depleted of all of his energy, these kind of wonderful very physical effects of them turning into these husks. And I think it's really creative and and quite apocalyptic. You know, it becomes this apocalyptic mm. um, with this threat here, which this film throws out at one point. You get the previous captain of the theater and his little messages saying, we will stop this from leaving Earth. <laughs> He just died on the ship. They blew it up. But, yeah, you know, like they 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 hint at that, but they don't do anything. No, I mean, again, uh, one of the uh, the things about vampire films of this time is they all all of them have uh, Kerr in it. Yes, and, <laughs> yeah, and even yeah. this one, and um, it, it it did seem to be at this point that if you were doing a vampire film, he had to be there. It was like contractual in Hollywood that if if there's even a hint of a vampire, uh, Udo Kerr has got to be there. And I, I don't know how it became this. Uh, I, 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 f- I think the first film around that time I saw him in was, was it Blade? I think Blade, Blade he's, he's, you know, he played a big part. And then from, ev- from, from that point onwards, you know, he's always, he's always in these vampire films. And yeah, Sorry, I was going to say, it's funny because, you know, he only played um, Dracula you know, in one film, and and yet he sort of got typecast with playing a vampire from yeah. well, not from that point on, but very much the nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's doing all right now because he's in Alexander Payne's new film, Downsizing. So, oh, okay, uh, uh, you, you know, he's he's gone up in the world again. But uh, <laughs> but is he playing a vampire? That's no, that's no, the thing. no, no, a- a- absolutely not. No, um, <laughs> but uh, but but no, uh, it, it's. I don't know this, this whole thing. It, it, it feels like, and again, you know, it, I know it's very easy to to sort of um, uh, be almost cruel about this stuff, but it, it did feel literally like that they, they had a factory they could film in. They had a few, you know, um, blank firing guns, and they had a really bad Dracula costume, and they all kind of got together and did this, and it was just like. You, you know, it, it really felt like there there'd been no thought into any of it, and um, you know, I, d- I didn't. I mean, other than the cast, in terms of the the creative production crew, I, I didn't actually recognise any of the names at all involved in this. But oh. uh, you, you, you know, um, uh, it, it just felt it, it, it just felt like lots of missed opportunities mm. and lots of you know really obvious um sort of cheesy tropes thrown in and i mean you you know you get you've got in this um uh erica elianak who is kind of the uh the 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 lifeguard uh, baywatch babe prior to um pamela anderson and of course they put her in this film and what what do they put her in they put her in a tight fitting uh you, you know tank top vest top thing and tight leather jeans and you're like really you know you are just literally you, you know ticking <laughs> ticking all the sort of yeah yeah obvious boxes here aren't you <laughs> it's like um that th- th- there didn't seem to be any thought to to do anything you know against t- to subvert the expectation at all with any of this yeah um, but i, am I, I being have cruel? no i well <laughs> No, no, because I was going to say that um, her career up to that point, um, she's always sort of been cast in those roles because um, she did Under Siege where 
she popped up out, out of a cake. Literally. And, literally. Yeah. And then for the rest of the film had to follow Steven Seagal around and try not to get killed. Um, and then uh, in Chasers, which was a, a kind of a remake, oh, it was a remake of The Last Detail. Again, she was the one trying to get away and, you know, always sort of trying to do it in a sexy way. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if that's kind of, well, I mean... I have no, I have no idea about you know her, her pick of roles. Maybe that's was all that was offered to her, or that's the role she gravitated to. But yeah, my mm. point about the script and the filmmakers here is, is you know we've got if you listen to the script, you know this is supposed to be set in the year three thousand. So you know this is beyond Star Trek stuff, even right? Yeah, and and, and you know all of all of the script still has. Um, what they consider in inverted commas jokes, but everything is 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 sexist or about race and ethnicity. You yes. know that they, 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 they it's got all of those sort of things going on, and you think really this is supposed to be like a the future, and and nothing's evolved at all. I, I, I may, maybe I'm just trying to look too deep into something that was very shallow, but uh, I, I don't know. Was it just me, or did no. you guys sort of feel that as well? <laughs> I agree completely. I think that they just, they they offer that kind of image and they're not doing it as critique. You know, it's not like they're critiquing the fact that yes, in three, the year 3000, nothing will have changed. I don't think they can, it doesn't look like they've conceived of it as differently because they, it feels like they're just falling, they're all falling back on these tropes. And again, I, I come back to Alien. Like this is clearly, they are, they are partly trying to remake Alien because again, with issues of gender and race, being at the center, but they're not doing anything with it in the way the alien in nineteen in the nineteen seventies was was rethinking all of these things and presenting characters in very fresh ways. Mm. Here they just reinforce that. The only thing I would say that that, that potentially is, and, I, and I'm being kind here, but potentially saying interesting is the fact that the climax doesn't end with Captain Van Helsing destroying the vampire and saving the earth he is he is he is dispatched earlier on but in you know in a, and it becomes the woman and the um african-american mechanic who becomes the, um not heroes because that's really kind but mm-hmm. the ones who survive at least until they die. <laughs> yeah um i i have to say watching this film it, it it feels like it could be one of two things it could have been that there was another dracula in space film been uh, made at the time or you know in pre-production and the studio decided that they wanted to be first so they put this together very quickly very cheaply and they put it out there or the second thing I think it was was it was made for tax purposes so they could write off a load of tax and you know for very little money it's just the the there's no heart, no thought. It's it's lazily put together. It's you know, the yeah. the actors there they probably did it for a paycheck. Uh, I, I I really find it hard to believe that anybody was there doing it. Uh, you know because they believed in it. Uh, possibly. I mean, I know, I know that. Um, I know of actors who who you know they've gone for jobs on films and they've been promised something and then you know promised that it'd be a good role they get to play a goth or something like that and when they turn up it's just like a bin liner or something like that you know um 
but you yep. could you could tell <laughs> you could tell that you know the actors didn't really care they just wanted to get through this and get done apart from coolio i think coolio was having an absolute blast on yeah. that film i think he was having the best time he of his life a different movie. and he didn't yeah, realize he was, he was being filmed <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I- I mean, I watch, you know, I've watched a lot of, um, you know, we we often we go to Fright Fest and Mm. all sorts of things and watch a lot of bad films and and, or or low budget films or whatever. But often I'll find the good in something because I think, well, you know, at least at least they tried this and okay, that didn't work. But there was some effort there. But with this one, other than the 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 concept, because I think the concept of Dracula telling the Dracula story in space is is absolutely fine, you know, and being contained on a ship, um, you, you know, in, in the middle of the galaxy and all that, that, that's, that works. But yeah. everything else in terms of the, 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 the script, the design, everything about this just to me didn't feel like it had anything thought through whatsoever and nobody seemed invested in it. You know, that, that's my problem with this. And I, I can certainly see why you, why he chose movie <laughs> yeah. hell because yeah. for me for me to to be completely unforgiving about a film you know Mike Mike Tack one of our regulars often often takes the mickey out of me that I that that I find something good in everything but <laughs> with, with with this one this really is the exception I yeah. I, I sat there thinking oh I wonder if this is going to be too bad I kind of like this concept in a cheesy way but. It was. It was awful. Uh, It's quite possibly one of the worst films I've seen since we've been doing Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And, you know, we've seen some bad ones. Yeah. (laughs) And and it's not bad. It's so bad that it's good either. It's just awful. Just awful. And it does feel like the scriptwriters just gave up by the end. I mean, that last scene. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Oh, dear. So, yeah, so... um, Eleanor Aranex character seems in a, in her previous programming when because she's a robot, she sexy was, robot chick. Yeah, yes, that's a she was like yeah. a, a sex bot, and <laughs> and she goes, "I'm off the clock." And what's the guy says? He says, "Woo hee! I must be in the front row." <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, there's there's a stinger after the end credits. Actually, Is I there? don't know whether anybody ever. <laughs> it just I was getting on with something else, and it just, play, it just played out. And there's a thing where he walks through. I mean, it's it's terribly sexist and horrible. He he walks through with her over his um over his shoulder yeah. and yeah. looks at the camera and says something. He slaps her behind and says something like, slap that ass or something uh, and walks off. And I'm like, oh, my God. Well, that was, the, that was the weird thing about the ending. So he picks her up, walks out, and then you just see the ship explode. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously that was a scene that was supposed to go in between the two. And then they put yeah, it at the end. Oh it's like... It's like probably, I think the editor didn't even bother either. He just said, oh, yeah, sorry, we've got the shot. Let's stick it at the end. They'll make it 90 minutes. It was almost like it was an outtake, actually. It was re- it was really weird and jarring. And I was just kind of like, you know, already by that point, I couldn't believe what I'd just watched. And then when that popped <laughs> up, I was like, seriously? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I, 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 I must admit, though, uh, Dracula is a very cruel Dracula in this. When he offers the guy in the wheelchair, the uh, Stephen Hawkins of the group, uh, <laughs> his 
that if you know eternal life and his legs and then when he does turn unfortunately he regain he, he doesn't get the, the use of his legs again i was just like again as did they think oh that that would be interesting that would be such a twist you know he offers this guy you know his legs back and he doesn't give it to him <laughs> it's just like yeah yeah uh, yeah now it was pretty hard but oh, the other thing as well and again you know we know things are difficult when you're on a low budget or whatever but yeah. it's t- t- talk about not using one's imagination part of the uh the controls on the bridge or the control room or wherever they were not only did they have obviously crt televisions which you can forgive that to one extreme but they actually had a vhs <laughs> player right in front of the main console and i was like seriously <laughs> Well, obviously, all the all the readouts have been recorded onto VHS. It's like, well, that looks high tech. (laughs) It's like, really, you you know, it it was it was it was literally like they turned up to a factory that they were allowed to film in, and Mm -hmm. they took whatever you know pieces of hardware they could get and they just sort of piled it all on top of each other and said right there's our ship controls you know (laughs) it's like really this is terrible (laughs) and i think for me i think you know one of the reasons i chose it is that i think it's just one of those films that says there's so much potential and i've watched a lot of mediocre not great vampire films but where they have good ideas or there's an interesting idea and you're right you'll forgive a lot but i think this is sometimes i feel where you see the industrial, all those points you raised about the industry of just these very matter-of-fact reasons to do this, says genre can become an easy route to cheaply making a film quickly and quickly just to get it out there and not recognizing that actually, and with no respect for genre at all and saying actually there's there's significance to this or there's there should be some ideas. And I think it just really captures that sense of actually we're just gonna we're just gonna put in lots of people dying and lots of cheesy fangs and cheesy transformations and and then and sexist jokes and then we'll be good. And that's good. And yeah. it's very yeah, it's a very um annoying film in that respect. Where I just think no there's there you're not respecting the genre. I will I will forgive a lot if I feel that you have some respect for the genre that you're working with and have something to, you know, some ideas. That's why we mentioned Dracula 2000 earlier. Hmm. It's not a great film, but I think it has ideas. And yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, when, when you first sent it across, to start with, I thought you meant Dracula 2000 because I didn't even, wasn't even aware there was a Dracula 3000, right? Yeah. And I thought to myself, oh, yeah, I mean, that's 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 flawed and that's got its problems. But it's not a, a bad film. You know, I kind of like certain aspects of it. Um, yeah. But like you said, with this, it's, this is a totally missed opportunity, you, you know, from a really, really good high concept idea that was just like there was no love or attention made to any of it and um yeah you know so uh, i almost wish you had chose dracula 2000 because at least that would have been <laughs> that would have been a, 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 you know a semi-decent film <laughs> but no you, you you did what we said and, and, and you know it's movie heaven movie hell for a reason and uh, th- this is almost like the epitome of um our, our show concept <laughs> to go from near dark to this yeah <laughs> yeah i know yeah oh. i can't 
Dracula 2000, but in good conscience, I quite enjoy it. I think it's flawed, but I actually, it's fine. You know, yeah. there, this me is the worst. There are <laughs> oh. other, yeah, yeah, this is definitely the worst. Definitely. I mean, I mean, I, I wish someone. I actually wish someone would go out there and make a a Dracula in space. Um, you know, reimagining and and do it, but just do it well. That would yeah. that would be. And, and like you said, respect the respect the genre, respect the yeah. material, yeah. and 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 make a good film. Um, that that would be awesome. I, I'd I'd pay to go and see that. But uh, yeah. but this, um, you know, sadly, I, I won't be able to get my money back, and I won't be able to, and I won't be able to get the eighty three minutes of my life back. Either, <laughs> but hey ho. <laughs> uh, I I see your future, Keith. I see you going to a charity shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know whether I'd even want to wish that onto the poor, poor people. Um, you know, uh, giving giving their good money to charity. I don't <laughs> to a good cause because because they don't get a good return. <laughs> I wonder if there are any fans of this film because I mean, it, is that weird thing that even a, a bad film has its fans? I oh, wonder. Yeah. I wonder if there's any fans out there. If there's any fans, go. I. I. I they just. Just write to us and tell us what you think. Why. Why you like it. I, I'm really curious to know if. If yeah. anybody likes this film. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I felt like the filmmaker didn't even like it, or at least that's how it feels. Which. Which mm. you've got a big problem there. You, you know. <laughs> but I, I. And I don't know. I. I've not heard of this Daryl. Is it Daryl Root? Daryl Root or whatever. Yes. What's he done? Uh, he's done quite a lot, actually, uh, but oh, nothing you okay. ever have heard of. He, <laughs> okay. he does a lot of these sort of low-budget uh, films and TV movies and stuff. Um, my, my he's, done, he's done more than I absolutely yeah. on him from that point of yeah, view. Yeah, but, but, but I, I, uh, do, I get the sense <laughs> of him as he's a guy who turns up to work in the morning and just does a job that he hates, because that's what it feels like. It feels like that uh, one cashier at... You know, a supermarket who's not even bothered, you know, doesn't even look you in the eye when they're scanning your food and ask you for your money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, whilst we're on that subject, I noticed like a lot of, if you like, technical filmmaking things that that weren't great like some of some of his camera angles uh, would, would, would change during a scene with with you know for no dramatic reason whatsoever um and i'm thinking specifically here about the the scene where um uh erica elinax got a, a a gun a rifle pointed at um uh i guess it is the coolio character i'm trying to think which point of the film this was but right. it, i found it very distracting that it kept sort of cutting from a from a mid shot to a low angle and it was almost like i i don't know whether it, there was something wrong with the with the take or the performance that they had to sort of cut around it but it, it to me it actually did feel quite distracting um, mm. i don't know whether any any of you guys noticed that but uh, <laughs> if if you're even that you know engaged at that point <laughs> not really <laughs> oh no not really i mean um possibly i mean as an editor you you tend to do that sometimes if if you've you know if you feel that the acting's not that great you try and in that one little bit you try and cut round it or they were just trying to make it a bit more 
I mean, also the fact is uh, we don't know how many cooks were in this kitchen as well. I mean, we don't know what the producers were saying. <laughs> Was there a producer on this? <laughs> I I think the producer took all the budget. I think there was a bigger budget. I think the producer got it. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, listen, Stacey, um, yeah. I do I do kind of feel that we've given Dracula 3,000 way more air time than it deserves. Uh, but, 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 you know, obviously we're really pleased to have you on as our guest. So I'm wondering, is, is there any, uh, any other aspects about vampire movies or the horror genre or anything that, that, that you want to you wanna start a small discussion on while we've got you? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that um, the vampire film goes in cycles, as with every genre films. And, you know, we obviously, in the early 2000s, we hit a kind of peak of popularity of the vampire with the Twilight. And suddenly the vampire being hugely mainstream and everyone watching it. What I think has really been interesting for me, and maybe we can talk about it, is um, since that peak has kind of hidden. Twilight moments gone. The rise of these really kind of interesting indie kind of vampire films, so coming from unusual places. So I'm a huge Jim Jarmusch fan and mm. love the Lovers Left Alive. Um, well, I mean, the thing I loved about uh, Only Lovers Left Alive was the fact that um, it wasn't about being a vampire. It was the, the whole idea of, of, of time, of all this time passing and uh, the sort of the seeing things around you disintegrate. I mean, the fact that it was set in uh, Detroit and just seeing the sort of the uh, urban decay happening around them uh, while they're still, you know, you know, still young and, you know, still able to, to go out and do stuff. I mean, it was it was a very interesting take on it. And it was very, very much, you know, very Jim Jarmusch. Uh, kind of film and uh, yeah I really enjoyed that and um, exactly know, yeah for me that was one of the things where you think yeah, this is a really fresh use it's someone standing back and saying if I'm going to have characters or vampires what can I do with that hmm. and saying I'm not going to make because in many ways it isn't a vampire film because right it's not that's not what it's about it's yeah. simply your characters happen to be vampires that's a particular perspective and I love that sense of time passing and the cycles. There's a great line which Tilda Swinton's character talks talking about Detroit and saying how Detroit has fallen into decline, which says, but it will be reborn. Mm. You know, when and she has this wonderfully poetic line which is something like, you know, when the cities in the south are burning, Detroit will bloom because it will come back. It's by the water. It will there you know, and that sense of having seen the world evolve and change and the fact that things will come will be reborn and actually be able to stand back and say we'll come back i just found very very effective and made, really made me think about kind of the state of the world and that sense of cycles yeah and we see things coming to an end but actually things only certain certain things will change but things will come back and there's something about the, the vampire that allows you to look at time differently look at history well, the interesting thing about uh, vampires is the fact that they're very adaptable. You can you can tell all kinds of different stories with with vampires, and um, you know very much like the way you can tell lots different kinds of stories about zombies. You yes. know, and 
uh, it's it's one of those intriguing things where you can it's not just you know about Dracula in the high castle you know um, you know drinking the blood of virgins you can talk about uh, you know what happens over a long time or you can do something like uh, like I did with my film was about you know uh, it was a, a woman revenge film ultimately. Right. but it had touches of um like a superhero origin story where she's sort of discovering her her new abilities after turning and you know it's it's a, it's a very adaptable character it is absolutely and i think that's why i think it's really been quite a good period for vampire text because i think we're seeing a lot of people play with that it like let the right one in mm. you know this using the vampire to talk about bullying and, and abuse and mm-hmm. so, social isolation and children and I just think it you know it really offered this really fresh perspective of saying we're going to tell this story with kids um, but we're going to use this trope to kind of be our, our route into thinking about bullying and thinking about the you know the this lonely child and what it means to have this very special friend mm. who chooses you um as their friend and i and i think so it it does it is incredibly flexible uh and offers and because we we're moving away from and we're getting started talking about it with Anne rice you know there's this whole perspective of Anne rice brought into the vampire point of view and this idea of recognizing that they can be monsters but they can also be the central protagonist means that suddenly we, we open up how we can use the vampire because they don't always have to be the monster or the villain or um, something to be destroyed, as we saw with Dracula 3000, where it just becomes a trope to to destroy. Mm. Um, whereas suddenly, when you when you open up those perspectives and say, well, look, actually, we've got a group of characters, one of whom happens to be a vampire, or in Only Lovers Left Alive, you know, all the characters, or most of them are vampires, but we suddenly open up into to using it in a very different way. And I think it's why it it is really effective and very flexible. Um, and you're right about the zombie as well. We're seeing that more now with zombie texts, more, um, again, escaping the boundaries of just living versus the undead to now being used probably more overtly as metaphor than the vampire. I mean, the vampire is also used as metaphor, but yeah. the is much more upfront about that <laughs> and saying, you know, this is going to be about um Consumerism, where it's going to be about politics, or I, I just rewatched Land of the Dead, yeah, and mm-hmm. it's so obviously you know, mm-hmm. past struggle and post 9/11, and that's you know it, the, that text is that that genre. Yeah, I think lends itself really well when people want to be very clear about how they're using allegory. Yeah. The vampire is more; it can be more subtle. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think a lot of filmmakers tend to uh, go down it being a metaphor for sex or addiction. I mean, especially the film, The Addiction. I mean, yes. very much about uh, it being comparable to being a drug. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a really underrated film, The Addiction. It doesn't get kind of talked about enough. But, but I think you're right. And I think that trope has become more common now, the idea of thinking of it overtly as addiction. But mm. I think when The Addiction came out, that felt that was really fresh and because it, it, it tackled it head on wasn't sort of subtly in the background, but said, no, this is what we're doing. And we see her shooting up blood and, um, which in and of itself is just interesting. Instead of transfusing and taking it out, we're kind of injecting her. So she's injecting herself with it. And 
you know, just really interesting take on the genre. Yeah, well, we saw a touch of that in Near Dark with Caleb about how he how he looks and acts when he's yeah. he hasn't fed for a while. He does look like a drug addict. Absolutely, and he the need, the desire for it, mm. and those moments when he finally does drink blood when he drinks from May. He has that. There's some really kind of uncomfortable scenes with him where he is just so caught up in wanting the blood that he doesn't care that he could hurt her. Mm. And he, he's sort of absorbed in that glee. Like it's just in that euphoria of drinking the blood that you see the drug addiction. You see that kind of being very, I think, again, very subconsciously evoked, um, which makes him quite ambiguous as a character mm. at times, even though he's yeah. our hero. I always find those scenes with her where I think he's really, I'm really uncomfortable with him here because mm-hmm. yeah. he's, yeah. he's using her in a really horrible way because, because he won't kill yet. So he'll, you know, live yeah. vicariously through her, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's when they really nail it is when you end up feeling ambiguous about the, the, the character motivations, because like you said, they either, you know, historically, you know, the vampire was always kind of the the, the villain in, in, in those sort of stories. And then it got to the point where they sort of romanticized the, the whole idea of being a vampire and, and, you know, the power that comes with that. And um, I think those those films that kind of, uh, you, you know, sit on the on, on the edge of of the good and, and, and the dark are the ones that sort of the best really i mean mm. is, is there anything um forgive me but is there anything sort of coming up um either movies or, or or tv shows or whatever about vampires um in the near future because obviously we've had this whole sort of run like you said of the zombie uh, material which has been very popular in the last sort of decade or whatever but is, is there anything um vampire wise coming up that we should keep an eye out for mm. yeah well um, there is, it's, I don't know when it's going to happen. There are lots of rumors at the moment of various different TV series because vampires are still very big on TV. So there is talk about a Let the Right One In television series, uh, which is supposed to be in development. And I, I don't know when that might turn up. Um, I think the thing that I'm quite curious about is the idea of the Vampire Chronicles on television, which Anne Rice now has all the rights to her work has returned to her. So she's planning a television series. Okay. Um, and I'm kind of curious about that because she is a big fan of quality television and serialized TV drama. Um, and is rec- she feels she's recognized that this is a, a potentially very good space to rework her vampire stories. So what she might do with that, who knows? And yeah. I'm really curious to see, um, particularly because she's very much talking about the Vampire Chronicles, not just Interview the Vampire, not necessarily just the stat. So whether or not she's going to try to tell these stories and building in this kind of world of vampires she's created in her books. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. It, it could be interesting. It could yeah. not. No, I think it's one of those things. Let's see. Um, I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. Were, were you a, um, whilst we're on the subject of sort of television-based, yeah. uh, I mean, were, were you a fan of the, um, you know, the Charlene Harris stuff, uh, the, the True Blood? Um, True Blood. I, I was initially, I have to say, like, and I suppose my relationship with both the Charlene Harris books and the True Blood is I, I enjoy them to a degree. I've read, I haven't read all the books, 
I find them quite samey. So I've, I read every once in a while, if I'm in the mood for something that's a quick, plain journey reading, I might read the next one. They're very, they're fun, but they're very formulaic. Um, the TV series, I really liked it at first. And I think its first couple of seasons are, are very strong, really interesting. Um, very mainstream. I think it's HBO playing at doing vampire text and trying to make it seem more quality than it is. I think it's it's doing what vampire texts have been doing for a long time. So I don't think it's that innovative. But I do think the early scenes are good, but then it becomes too dispersed. Too, there are too many characters. They, they try to do too much. So I think it, it loses what I thought was interesting about the early seasons. I did watch yeah. it to the end. I watched it all. Um, and I have it all. I hated the ending. I think the the series, what what it did potentially that was good about it being quite transgressive and um, quite yeah just transgressive in terms of depictions of gender and sex and and everything was which was interesting. They completely undermined by how they ended the series and it became incredibly conservative, uh, which was really I think I can't believe you went this direction um, and thought I think this is what you think these stories are. About. Um, I liked that first, you know, I think, that, and there are elements I enjoy. Yeah, I, I have to confess, I've only actually seen the first season, which uh, at the time when it when it was out, which I guess was, you know, 2008 or whatever, uh, I thought was excellent. But for some reason, I didn't sort of pick up with it. And I believe it ran for a full seven seasons. Did, did for it full not? seven. Yes, yeah. it did. Yeah. Wow. I probably, probably watched it at its best. There are, I quite like, I think the next season, season two, I don't think is as good. Three and four, I quite like. But I think what was good about that first season really works. And then because they are trying to create a big supernatural world, it just becomes, there are too many characters, too many threads that you just think, no, I, I, you're not sustaining my interest because you're spreading it too thin. And partly it's because I like vampires. So I, I become like, okay, I'm really not interested in the werewolf narrative. You know, so now you know. So I get yeah, it. yeah. There's there's an element of you know someone else might feel very differently. You know, I don't have anything against werewolves, but I just eventually went. Actually, you've got too many supernatural creatures. I can't care about all of these characters. <laughs> I was going to say, Stacy, what are, what are your thoughts on mixing these the subgenres? So you have these situations where werewolves and vampires, etc., exist within the same universe. What, what's your thoughts on that? I, I don't have any, I mean, there's a long history of that. I don't have any problem with it. I mean, I'm a big fan of the universal monster mashups um, and think that there's potential, there's some really interesting potential of that. I think it, sometimes it feels trite and formulaic. So we're just trotting out werewolves as the horrible servants of vampires. It just re sometimes I think it's used to just reinforce um, familiar cliches about them, about monsters. Um, but there are texts that do well. I was a big fan of the television series Penny Dreadful, which was not perfect. It had its flaws, but I thought actually brought together all of those monsters in quite interesting ways. Um, and I, I think it's a really interesting take on Dracula and and Frankenstein. And I think it does did some interesting things with it because it it tried to create a world that is this kind of grand guignol um, 
penny dreadful place where all these things exist. And it, I, I thought it, it became quite apocalyptic, and I thought that worked really well. But it doesn't always. Sometimes, like you know, the the that film Van Helsing for me is one of the yeah. best of bringing things together, and it just feeling like this is just so you can have CGI werewolves and. It's it's there's no point to it. Hmm. Well, what do you think of the uh, underworld films? Um, I I have mixed feelings about them. I've, I've, I do have them all. I've watched them all. I think I think the main character of Selena is a really interesting character as a vampire, and I quite like her. I'm, I tend to be a fan of the second one, Evolution, more than the first. I think they have a lot of promise, and I like this idea of. This war between, I think that one at least has a point to this war between vampires and werewolves and this kind of class system, and it deals with interesting things about prejudice. Um, and I, I'm interested in this idea of this evolution of these creatures into new future hybrid forms. Um, so I think it does some really nice things, and it's a good, very you know, gothic visual action films. I think they keep making them. I'm not sure that they. Each film is doing anything new and interesting, but um, they have certain aesthetic pleasures. I always have a good time, and I, I think Celine is a lot is a lot of fun. But I think you know, stopping at two probably would have been enough. All right. Well, um, Stacey, uh, you know, thanks ever so much for your uh, for your time today. We really appreciate having this, and obviously, it's a massive subject that we could literally talk for hours about. Um, but uh, I want to give you the opportunity uh, if you've got anything you want to promote or a place where people can find your work, uh, where, where could they go for that? Well, um, thank you for the opportunity to um, promote. Um, I've written two books on vampires. I've written a book called Celluloid Vampires, which if people want to read about kind of then that's really interested in what cinema has brought to the vampire story. And, that is available via Amazon or other booksellers. Um, more recently, and we talked about hybrid, um, I, my most recent book is called Undead Apocalypse, which is actually about 21st century vampire and zombie film and TV. And um, it's currently available in hardback at a, a rather expensive rate, but will be coming out in paperback in January. So do look out for that if anyone's interested in reading about that contemporary vampire and zombie film and TV. Um, it really it, part of that book is thinking about kind of this apocalyptic world that the world seems to be getting more apocalyptic even than when I wrote it um, but is sort of thinking about how these these figures explore notions of apocalypse in contemporary culture so um, I think it's a lot of fun <laughs> uh, but it will be out in paperback so I don't expect people to buy the rather extortionately expensive hardback but soon to be available at a normal rate in the new year. Fantastic. Or um, any more talks or anything at the BFI coming up? Not at the moment, no. Um, next year, not for a while, but next year I'll be talking about mummy movies at the British Museum, but I don't have a specific date for that. So I will be diversifying into a different type of undead or walking dead or whatever you want to call mummies. Um, but no, no, no immediate plans for any talks, although I'm always open to do more at the BFI. <laughs> And uh, can people follow you on Facebook and Twitter? I am on, yes, I am on Facebook. And um, what is my Twitter? I am at Stacey Abbott, are you on Twitter? So they can follow me on Twitter. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you about all of this today. <laughs> 
Oh, it's uh, been our pleasure. No, we've enjoyed having you on for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. Well, I'm always happy to talk about that. <laughs> Thank you. I really enjoyed it. So, Keith, where can people find your work? Okay, well, if you go to YouTube and put in British Isles, spelled E-Y-L-E-S, as in my last name, you can see short films that I've made there. Uh, and if you go, look me up on IMDB, you can see other projects that I've been involved in. And as always, you can find my work at independentrunnings.com. And uh, also, why not check out my feature on Amazon Prime, Blood and Roses? you can find this podcast on itunes stitcher youtube and all good podcast providers uh you can follow us on facebook and twitter just search movie heaven movie hell and leave us a rating and review on itunes and stitcher it all helps so uh thank you for joining us and uh tune in to the next episode of movie heaven movie hell
Two more times they'll fly. 